are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 8. Today we are in La Manga del Mar Menor. Hello, my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, Lionel. And Daniel Fribb... I was trying to think oh, of a Spanish a equivalent. What would be a Spanish you have to work equivalent on that. of Daniele Fribrencini? It, it, it works so probably well in be, Italian. Probably be Daniel Fribe Lopez. <laughs> Dan, Dan, Fribe Sanchez. Danny Fribes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, that's who we're with anyway. And where where is he? Where are you, the Spanish well, Daniel? Well, chaps, I am overlooking Europe's largest saltwater lagoon, which people have also, well, people around here now also refer to as one of Europe's biggest ecological disasters. But more of that later, I think. We're going to talk about that issue, aren't we? Um, but I mean, yeah. La Manga and, and the... The saltwater lagoon that I'm referring to is called Mar Menor. Yes, and it is um, a, a bit at the centre of a a big scandal or a big controversy um, with a lot of a lot of dead fish washing up. But as you say, Daniel, um, we will get to that a bit later on. Um, a, a fairly uneventful stage today at the Vuelta España. Um, and uh, with a sprint finish at the end I mean uh, how was your day Daniel from a logistical point of view was it fairly straightforward not too difficult um, the well the position of the stage finish on this little peninsula that goes out into well it sort of divides Mar Menor from the main from the Mediterranean I talked yesterday about how La Manga had used this slogan I think when the when the resort was booming in the 60s and 70s the paradise between two seas the two seas being Mar Menor and the, the Mediterranean we sort of went out um, along this peninsula six or seven kilometers I think or maybe even more to the finish line and wasn't too difficult it had it had the potential to be one of them ones but um, not too bad and we didn't see any golf courses rich i talked yesterday about la manga and its reputation for golf and the, the big golf golf complex there that's become beloved to former footballers particularly from england and, and i think scotland and um yeah i seem to remember some some scottish players of relatively ill repute getting up to some <laughs> hijinks at training camps at la manga and there was well, certainly one with well, gaza we actually got them to cover up all the golf courses to um, the second podcast arranged for this so that you weren't distracted from the task <laughs> in hand today which was to concentrate on the stage well I learned I learned that the golf complex anyway is not on this peninsula not on this little inlet it is on the mainland a few kilometres from where we passed today so there was no real yeah, there was no that, chance to go off piste unfortunately that's what you think. The, the 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 huge golf complex is actually covered by a tarpaulin at the moment. Um, but I mean, the fact I'm asking about logistics says it all really about the stage. We do, as well as today's stage and the sprint finish, we will be talking this episode. You've done an interview with Juan Magarate, sports director EF, who says some interesting things about Hugh Carthy. Much to digest there, and we'll also be hearing from Matt Winston, sports director at Team DSM, who won yesterday, of course, but with a rider who'll be leaving the team at the end of the year and that 
continue as a kind of pattern with that team and you ask him about that as well Daniel so we'll be getting into all that later on but do you have the tale of the Atapa please Lionel? I have yeah and first of all an apology because anyone who was uh, downloading the episode last night and saw that it said stage eight apologies that was that was my fault i was so i was so excited about the prospect of today's racing that i skipped one day ahead and, and misnamed uh, yesterday's episode as stage eight when of course it was stage seven i'm sure our listeners were you know sharp enough to work out that that was just a simple operator error but sorry about that this is stage eight 173 kilometers to la manga del mar menor and the three amigos from the wildcard teams away uh, three different riders this time from Burgos BH, Ander Okamika, Cajaral had Alex Baguez and Uskaltel had Mikhail Ituria in the break and they trundled up the road and uh, with 50k to go they still had a minute and 25 lead and then it came down a bit and then about 35k to go uh, the break was caught just as they reached some exposed areas where the crosswinds didn't materialise. Uh, there was some interesting countryside. Nobody told us Dana that, did they? No, that's true. True. Yeah, there was some interesting countryside. The the pink salt lagoons, uh, which uh, owe their colour to a certain type of algae that that grows in them, and uh, well, that might be one of the one of the reasons for the ecological disaster. But there's some dispute and controversy about that, and which, as Daniel said, we'll talk about a bit later on. There was another section where they looked like they were racing on the surface of Mars. The, the soil, if that's what it was, sandy soil perhaps, was very orange. Uh, it was a real controlled... It's a very... Sorry, good chance, you, you know, occasionally, occasionally I like to mention the light quality at bike races. And one of the one of my grievances about Murcia when I've been in this region before with the Vuelta is there's a very there's a very almost brown kind of sepia like quality here. Um, Napalm, we spoke earlier in the Vuelta or before the Vuelta about whether this was a green, a brown, or I can't remember what the other colour was of Vuelta, referring mainly to the landscape and how burned it was or how lush and verdant it was. But in Murcia, um, well, there's the, the humidity is very significant as it was um, where we were yesterday around Alicante on the Costa Blanca. And um, I don't know whether it's, it's because of the moisture, but I don't know if you saw that on TV um, the whole the whole sort of region looks as though it's been put through an Instagram filter it's, and if it looked like Mars that might well have confused Pavel Sivakov who <laughs> having reached the moon recently has is now pushed on Mars he's pushed he on to Mars there already. <laughs> well the run in was um, from our vantage point looked pretty uneventful Yetzabol of Burgos BH took a flyer with 1.9 kilometres to go it didn't last long a few hundred metres perhaps De Kerning Quickstep looked the most organised of the Sprint trains, Groupama, FDJ didn't look too bad either, and UAE Team Emirates, uh, working from um, Milano, looked okay as well. And at the finish, it was Fabio Jakobsen taking his second stage win of the race. He is now level with Jasper Philipsen, two stage wins each for them. Alberto Dainese of Team DSM, the young Italian, was second, and Philipsen was third. That means that Jakobsen is back in green. Uh, the pair of them are playing pass the parcel with the green jersey at the moment. Only one abandoned today, Davide Chimolai of Israel Startup Nation. A real snooze fest, really, of a stage. Very uneventful as things go. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I think boring stages are a necessary part of a Grand Tour's rich tapestry. You don't get the highs without the, the lows. But I genuinely think there's an opportunity 
um, for a race, perhaps the Welter, to, to go for a really, really short stage, 50 kilometres or maybe even 25, or, or why not go absolutely mad and just have a 10 kilometre uh, stage one afternoon? And it's all that over and done safe. in 20 minutes. You probably get the same. You probably get the same result. It would be event viewing that rather than sort of a four-hour trundle to see which of the best two sprinters in the it, race would win. Why not have it downhill as well, Lionel? No, I don't, <laughs> I don't be ridiculous. My suggestion is sensible. You are listening to Vueltas y Revueltas, the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Super Sapiens is the title sponsor of the Cycling Podcast. And last night we heard from Jumbo Visma's head of nutrition who also works with super sapiens Aska Jurkendrup and uh, well let's hear a little bit more from Aska and if you'd like to find out more about super sapiens and how it can help you to fuel optimally for your riding whether that's competitive riding or just you want just want to get the best out of yourself go to supersapiens.com it's definitely surprised me sometimes uh, because a lot of what we know about nutrition is based on averages or population uh, data and so what we when we give nutrition advice it is usually based on those averages and then you see that sometimes when you expect a certain response to a certain food that you actually respond quite differently um, so maybe your glucose peaks are much smaller than you would expect or they, they are much larger than you uh, would expect that that was definitely one of the eye openers for uh, for me that uh, I, I thought that some of these things were yeah a little bit more uniform but it seems to be very personal this is also why I think it's such an interesting tool because you can you can really look at your own data and 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 then based on that uh, draw your own conclusions so i think if we for example if we give you a lower glycemic index food like a food that doesn't uh, give a large insulin response and a large glucose response and me and we we then eat a, a high glycemic index food then we we would probably both have a higher response with the higher glycemic index food but it could still be that you respond much more to these foods than uh, than I do so the magnitude of change could be quite different between uh, you and I the general principles that we've learned over many years of research they they still apply but the individual responses can still be quite different Some lovely church bells there, Daniel, in Alicante, I believe, this morning where you started. Yes, Rich. Uh, Alicante, a place that for most people, a lot of people, is just synonymous within an airport and somewhere they pass through on the way to their holiday destination. But we were in the old town last night. We stayed in the old town. And um, yeah, it was it was lively. 
um, deep into the night last night. I won't say how deep into the night, but um, it was very much worth uh, a few hours and very much worth a, a stopover if you're in the area. I went up to the castle that overlooks Alicante this morning, had a nice run up there, and quite enjoyed our few hours on uh, in that area of the Costa Blanca. I have stayed in Alicante before on the Vuelta, um, presumably with you, Daniel. But I've I've have stayed in the old town once before and thought it was a very nice town actually. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite a holiday destination itself as well, isn't it, Alicante? But um, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a rip snorter of a stage, was it? I mentioned Astana uh, in the during your your Telve etapa, Lionel. Um, they they did uh, try to initiate something when the wind might have been blowing ever so slightly but we didn't we didn't see a lot of action really today um the sprint it was all about the sprint finish and fabio jacobson uh sharing the, the sprint wins with jasper Philipson. he took it today um and it was well it, it looked like a, a bit of a headwind finish nobody seemed to be able to stay with their sprint trains um florian seneschal did a great lead out so did Jacopo Guarnieri and there was great footage of him actually because Group Am FTJ had a really good sort of sprint train organised for about the last five kilometres and it, it looked like it was going really really well and then it all uh, went wrong with about a kilometre to go when Demar lost his lead out train and, and then began to sort of freelance and wasn't in it at all I think he was seventh in the end but really couldn't even really open up his sprint he was boxed in and Guarnieri had remained very committed to the task. He was on Florian Seneschal's wheel. When Seneschal swung over, Guarnieri took over, thinking that he was leading out Demar. And when he then swung off and sat up, you could see him, his head was just swiveling to the side, checking to see where Demar was. And it was quite a while before he saw him and he, his head just slumped uh, in disappointment. Another, another disappointment for for that team uh, but a, a great day again for Fabio Jakobsen you know who we talked about it after his first stage when his his comeback story is remarkable and today was another very impressive uh, sprint and th- this could be setting him up for becoming his team's number one sprinter next year perhaps you know which very few would have bet on at the start of this year well it's interesting chaps I don't know if you saw the reports I think they were in Patrick Lefebvre's column um, Patrick Lefebvre's column, as we know, always yields some kind of talking point on a Friday in Het Newsblad. And yesterday he was talking about who's going to be the team's third sprinter for 2022. Um, he mooted the possibility of even getting Elia Viviani back to the Koenig Quickstep. Viviani, who had been rumoured, is, is strongly rumoured to be going to Ivan, Basso, Ivan Basso's Eolo team who competed in the Giro d'Italia this year but yeah I mean I mentioned a few days ago when Jacobson won his first stage that he has well prior to his accident he had an outstanding win percentage and I think people didn't quite realize the extent to which he was he was on a beeline really for the the very top of the of the sprinting pile and he's well he's back on form isn't he he's back to to his best and he seems to be getting better but just on the lead outs Rich 
I remember we did an episode, I think at the start of the year, where we, we, we gave our potential talking points for 2021. And I talked about maybe a, a bit of a paradigm shift in lead outs and how the lead out, I think I, I got this badly wrong at the time, exposing my lack of knowledge about track cycling. But I said that lead outs may start to resemble team sprints a bit more um, in the sense that lead out trains might start to be composed more of sprinters actual sprinters than what we've traditionally thought of as lead out men who are slightly more like time trialists and I think the Alpes in Phoenix have, have shown a little bit of a glimpse of that in this Vuelta so far that they've, they've wanted to come really late and they've come with guys like Sasha Modulo and Krieger who are pretty much almost sprinters in their own right and it's a well it's a strategy that's worked for Philipson but it's also well it's high risk high reward because today they simply couldn't find the space at 1.5 kilometers to go or or thereabouts and therefore it didn't really work whereas Group Armour FDJ who you mentioned there theirs looks like quite a traditional lead out train to me they're trying to take control relatively early have all their guys lined out and that's fine as long as all of them are in good form, feeling strong. And I'm not sure that that's the case at this Vuelta. But on that note, on the Alpes in Phoenix lead-out train and what they're trying to do here and what they tried to do today. I did actually speak to Sasha Modolo after the finish. And, well, he did indeed confirm that they were trying to leave it late and they did run out of space. Honestly, I... I lost the Jasper wheel, so uh, okay. Today we run something, but wrong. A lot rider in the front, a nervous finish. So sometimes the sprint are the slot machine, no? Uh, today won the Cooney, <laughs> and okay. The Tuesday we try again. Sasha, in the other stages, yeah. you guys have come quite late. That's, and it's worked in the previous stages. What was the plan today for the lead-out? What did you hope to do today? Today we not found the, the space for passing the front uh, because uh, uh, we need to do the same things. Uh, try to, to pull uh, at 1k.5 to go and pull full gas. Today we not find the space for, for pass and it's okay. Sometimes sometime do, do good, sometimes no, so... Okay, unlucky today and we try again. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by NordVPN. I actually became a NordVPN customer several months ago, completely independently of this sponsorship arrangement, and I did so because I realised I was being pretty complacent about my online security. NordVPN offers online security whether you're at home or abroad and I guess I realised that while we're away working in particular we're often using hotel Wi-Fi or public Wi-Fi or tethering the laptop to a phone and using 4G to do all of our work and it just sunk in that this is not a terribly secure way to carry on. A VPN basically encrypts your data and routes it through a secure tunnel so that it can't be intercepted by anyone who might be fishing for uh, personal or financial details 
Now that might not be of critical importance when we're uploading audio files for the podcast, but while we're away, the podcast business has to carry on running too, and sometimes we have to pay invoices or book hotels or buy things online, and it just gives peace of mind to know that our financial and card details are all safe and secure. I also discovered an added bonus with NordVPN, which was that when you're traveling abroad, you can use the VPN to log in as if you're at home. So you can use Netflix or BBC iPlayer or GCN or the Eurosport player as if you were at home without running into any geo restriction issues. It's also really fast. So when you're using the VPN, you're not actually slowing down your connection. And that's important for us when we're uploading audio files in particular. You can use NordVPN on up to six devices so you could protect your laptop, phone, tablet, or even your home router. And NordVPN are offering Cycling Podcast listeners a big discount. If you go to nordvpn.com TCP, or use the code TCP at checkout, you can get a big discount when you sign up for a two-year plan. So go to nordvpn.com TCP, that's N-O-R-D-V-P-N dot com slash T-C-P to see what sort of discount is on offer today. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee if you decide it's not for you, so there's no risk either. One of the big talking points yesterday, Daniel, and one that we didn't really uh, spend a lot of time on in the episode because an awful lot happened on that stage one by Michael Storer, uh, but was with the withdrawal of Hugh Carthy uh, of EF Education Nippo, the leader going into the race and uh, you spoke to his sports director Wama Garati this morning in Alicante with he had some interesting things to say about um uh, you know he was a he was a podium finisher here last year at the Vuelta came in with with uh, I guess huge ambitions and 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 came in on the back of a great performance uh, in in Burgos before the before the Vuelta even started so I guess his hopes were high, um, and it, it was it was obvious really from the the first test in this Vuelta uh, on Monday's uh, stage that Carthy didn't have the legs that he had last year, or that's what it looked like. Well, Juanma, a great day two days ago, and not such a good day yesterday. Can you just tell us, well, in your your own words, what happened with you yesterday, and um, well, why did he pull out of the race? I think the, the stress of the first week, it cost him a lot of energy and a mental energy too. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of days, he was feeling kind of empty a little bit, tired. So he was not, uh, he couldn't keep the concentration anymore. And uh, in these conditions, it's better to don't stay here. You know, it's, uh, he needs a small break. He needs to go home and uh, to recover a little bit. How did you feel about his condition and his prospects coming into this Vuelta? I think it was great. I mean, he won last stage in Vuelta Burgos, you know, by dropping Bernal and uh, guys that are fighting here for the GC. So I think the condition was good. But, you know, it, it's not only about leg cycling. It's also about mentality and attitude and everything. And when, when you see that the team is fighting and uh, is keeping you in a good position all day long and then you, you for the different reasons, you cannot keep it. And then, it's, then it costs you a lot of mental energy, you know, and uh, yeah, and then you lose the moral, the concentration and everything, and it's, it was not a real nice start for us. We noticed the team, as a few people did, um, in the early stages, they were struggling for positions sometimes. Was that because Hugh was struggling, on even on those flat stages? That's what I said. I mean, uh, when you lose the position and then you, reco- you need to recover a couple of times and then... You know, you, you, you lose the concentration and you are not focused anymore and 
you know, you, you miss that intensity that uh, yeah makes makes a difference, you know. And I, when this happened a couple of times, and at the end you are involved, right? The first day by losing time, you know, and. So we lost uh, 30 seconds at the time trial, another 21 the day after, and it, this it cost him a lot of mental energy. And at the end, yeah, it is like it is. Uh, we need to accept it. And uh, you know, when uh, when somebody doesn't have a good condition, we don't have uh, questions about that. But in this case, it was not about condition. It was about uh, a different situation. You were a Grand Tour rider yourself, and you know we see this in the career of Grand Tour riders. They it's very few riders, maybe only Roglic, who's consistent in every one. You know, there are ups and big ups and downs. Is this something that Hugh is still learning, or does he already understand that that's just part of life as a Grand Tour rider? Of course, we, we, we see that uh, we have these kind of riders that they can ride all day long there in front. Uh, Hugh is not one of them. I mean, we, we have teams that are riding. We can see Movistar. Movistar, they ride every every single race, even if it's not Valverde or Mas or whatever, but they ride always in front in a good in that position, you know? And we are not a team that we usually we do that, so we cannot go from left to right in, in 24 hours. It's, we, are, we are improving in that. We are doing an adaptation, and this is something that we, um, we need to keep working, but it's, we need time. We need time for that. So for you, he always has uh, these riders, you know, as a reference, obviously, but we are in this process of uh, adaptation with the team and with our leaders too. Well, chaps, I'm keen to hear what you thought of that because they, they were comments from Juanma Garate which could be construed as as criticism of Carthy or a slight bemusement. Um, I'm, I'm always inclined to caveat these things. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that everything that's said in interviews is sacrosanct and um, it perfectly reflects what the interviewee is thinking I also, although Juan Garate speaks excellent English I think you have to give him, well, make some allowances for the fact that English is not his first language and when you're talking about attitude and mentality, people can well, they can take that one of several ways and you know, I, I don't think people necessarily should take from that that Garate is saying Carthy has a bad attitude or had a bad attitude uh, at this race. But I'm, I'm keen to, to hear what you guys thought of it. Well, I, I think that these guys, they, they really do know their riders. Um, and I, I didn't really... I, I think you, you could infer lots from it. And, and as you say, Daniel, it would probably be unfair to, um, to draw those sorts of inferences. What I took from it, I think what... I understood Garate to be saying was that, um, you know, some riders are, are are confidence riders, aren't they? And last year at the Vuelta, um, Hugh Carthy came into it quite unprepared. We'll speak a bit about this because Lionel, you were when we were talking about this before we started recording. You mentioned the interview that he did with Mitch Docker uh, for Life in the Peloton last year, and his he went he came into the Vuelta quite unexpectedly and performed really well from the start and kind of gained momentum throughout the race. He came into this year's race in a, in a quite a different position, uh, having finished on the podium last year, where there'd be pressure and expectation and, you know, some riders thrive on that and some riders struggle to deal with that. And that might be something that Hugh Carthy struggled with this time. It doesn't mean that in the future he won't deal with that very well. But what I took from it most of all was that he, Garati, and the team and Carthy himself perhaps felt 
that physically he was in really good shape coming into the race. And just a tiny thing, but um, as I drove out of Andorra uh, during the Tour de France with Mitch Docker, we did come across the EF Vuelta team uh, training uh, for the race. Now, you know, this was just a, a glimpse, but it was a glimpse that showed <laughs> showed the team committing to a, a very clear goal, which was the Vuelta. And, uh, you know, having finished on the podium last year, it was a very big goal indeed for Carthy. And there's no doubt at all he did. He put a lot of work into this. Um, and that can be very difficult. It can be very difficult to deal with the disappointment of not riding as well as you'd hoped, especially when your expectations were so high. And I think that's what I took from that interview. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Rich. And, and my interpretation was not an, a question of attitude, but a question of just just confidence and pressure. I mean, if you think back to Hugh Carthy's progression as a Grand Tour rider, you know, 2019, he had a very good Giro, he finished 11th. Um, and then that was the first year that he then tried to do a second Grand Tour in that in the same season. And he, and he went to the Welter and, and didn't finish. Last year he rode the tour and it was a slightly slightly disappointing tour, but he was there in a in a, a sort of team capacity. Um, he finished thirty seventh overall, and then Richie mentioned the interview he did with Mitch Docker for Life in the Peloton last year. That interview was conducted on the rest day after Carthy had won the Angleroo stage. I mean, you know, it the, was, sorry, Lion, I have to correct you there. The Angry Lou stage. The Angry Lou stage. Yeah, Mitch. Podcast. Yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna grass Mitch up to the pronunciation police the angry Lou. oh no it's, it's a badge of honour for him it's the angry Lou mate yeah um, but Carthy I listened back to that and, and it really is worth a listen to that whole episode not least for the section on butter pies but um, he'd come out of the tour and that's the pronunciation police right there <laughs> he'd come out of the tour and he made the comment that he'd basically been on the road um from the before the Dauphiné through the tour went straight to the world championships then he was called by the team EF who were down to the bare bones and they asked him if he'd go to Flesh Wallone and ride because they were so short of riders so he went up to Belgium and ride rode that and uh, he said he got home absolutely cooked had a had a bit of a rest for a few days uh, switched off relaxed with friends had a few beers then got back on his bike and he had a half an eye on the welter um, but when the sports director Charlie Wagalius rang uh, he, he basically told him that the team had the all clear if they wanted to to start the welter with only seven riders instead of eight so Carthy was in a real no-lose position he could ride with absolutely no pressure and the team told him that you know go in see how it goes you can pull out after 10 days if you want just whatever and just talking about how he felt um, in the you know the immediate aftermath of having won the, the toughest stage of the race he was he, he basically said it was another day when you wake up and jump out of bed and you just feel right some days you wake up and you don't feel right your back's hurting or something but the past couple of weeks everything's gone nicely everything feels right off the bike and then he said he'd been floating down the stairs harry potter style uh, on his broomstick while other riders were kind of you know wincing and groaning at the sort of aches and pains of racing so you know, he's clearly in a good place mentally and physically. And then this year, completely different. He went to the Giro earlier this year and finished a very good eighth. And um, 
you know, it's it's one of those seasons, I'm sure there's, whether it's spoken or not, there's just that, there must be that pressure of if you skip the Tour de France, you've got to really get some results in the bank in the so-called lesser of the of the Grand Tours, the, the Giro and the Welter. And having done pretty well at the Giro 8th, all eyes and all the pressure of the whole season on this race. And I th- I think that he's just not, not felt right um, from the off and, and when one thing goes wrong it it can unravel very quickly for riders I think and I think the other factor to take into consideration is that Carthy was the undisputed leader of the team this year and that in itself ramps up the pressure if you look back at the welter team last year for EF they had Danny Martinez they had you know TJ Van Garderen experienced okay maybe not with uh, not with uh, recent great result and Mike Woods as well and so the load was spread whereas it was very obvious from the start of this year's race that all of their GC hopes rested with Carthy and and that that was the goal and uh, sometimes GC riders have to take a step back in order to you know move forward you know I know it's a sporting cliche isn't it but you learn more from adversity than you do from success, I, I suspect. Yeah, and I think we often overlook, chaps, what a stop-start, stuttering process becoming a, a GC leader or consistent GC leader is. This is a point where I, I spoke this morning to Louis Meinkes, who's, who's well, resurgent at this Vuelta España, riding really well, was with the, the best climbers yesterday on the Seta Balcón de Alicante. Um, we'll, well, we'll hear more, we'll hear some of that interview in another podcast later in the Vuelta. But he talked to me this morning about precisely that, that, you know, from the outside, it looks as though your career has gone off the rails when, in actual fact, you might be producing the same numbers or even better numbers, but the competition could get better. And there are also lots of different dimensions to precisely that becoming a GC leader and it only takes one of them to fall away in this case maybe um, you know as we discussed the pressure or um, the, the difference between the, this year's welter and, and last year's in terms of Carthy's status and, and everything can look from the outside as though it's fallen apart Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science in Sport, our longtime sponsor. We're grateful to them for their support, um, for all the uh, various cycling podcasts. Uh, we've got a new episode of Cycling Podcast Femina coming out on monday as well um on the rest day at the vuelta if you'd like 25 percent off your science and sport products go to scienceandsport.com and enter the discount code at the checkout siscp25 that's 25 percent off everything you could possibly want from science and sport now chaps another story at this year's vuelta has been Team DSM, a poor season they have had, but they came in with Roman Bardet uh, riding well. He had a crash, of course, but they've picked themselves up, won a stage with Michael Storer, um, who, I was reminded uh, last night on Twitter, won the Drummond Trophy, one of the most prestigious road races in Scotland. I mean, doesn't it doesn't get better than that. Uh, the the Vuelta stage one will slot in just beneath that on his palmarès. Is that a bit like winning the? Um, is that a, a bit like winning the London Links monthly stablefoot? No, no, no. I believe there was a cutlery set on offer that day uh, as a prize. It used to actually be the, the the most lucrative race in 
uh, Scotland. It was supported, sponsored by Norrie Drummond, the bookmaker, and there was all, there were always big cash prizes on offer at the, at the Drummond Trophy. I finished second one year, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever won and it. You backed um, yourself. You bet yourself. Bet on yourself to finish first, uh, but but finish second. Yeah, 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 yeah. Po- pocketed a, a healthy purse for that. Um, still, uh, still living off the the interest from that. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> They've also, in their young Italian sprinter, Alberto Danese, um, been up there on the sprint stages and pretty close today. He was second to Jakobsen today, in between Jakobsen and Philipsen. He's doing it. I mean, they had a bit of a lead out today, but he's doing it pretty much on his own. Um, and he gets very low and looks almost Cavendish or Ewan-esque in, in the way that he sprints. He's quite a diminutive, diminutive guy. And Daniel, you spoke to Danese at the finish today. I did, Rich, and, well, he touched on precisely what you've just mentioned, the the help or lack thereof that he's had. He certainly had a good train, but he doesn't have quite the the well-oiled sort of last part of the train that some other sprinters have here. Well, you've just watched yourself on the sprint. I don't know how much you saw, but was that your best sprint so far in the world? It was the closest you've come to a victory. Yeah, it was the smoothest, for sure, going to the sprint. I mean, it was super hectic, but I tried to stay calm and don't be too much in the wind. And uh, yeah, I just uh, bet everything and I tried to stay in Jasper. And then uh, on the right corner before the left one, no, the left before the right, it was on Jasper. Then uh, Fabio pushed me out and then I took Fabio's read and then it was so fast that I, I, w- I was running out of gears and uh, yeah. Alberto, do you feel that you have enough watts to win one of those sprints and it's just a question of time and a question of finding the right position? Yeah, I said already to the other guy, uh, before Vuelta, yeah, I wouldn't believe that I'll, I'll be there every sprint. Now I see that they're still like human, so I can still challenge them. For sure, they're Fabian and Jasper are one, they're two of the best sprinters in the world, but it's also a question of timing and a bit of luck. Uh, yeah. yeah, you never know in a sprint. Maybe can go wrong the next two or can, can go like, pretty good. Well, there was Alberto Dainese, chaps, and he's getting closer and closer, as we heard there. He hasn't necessarily had the luxury of the, the lead-out man, the recognised lead-out man that some of the other sprinters have here, but he's a real project for them, um, that's pretty clear. Another one of these projects, and um, we had one yesterday, Michael Storer, winning the stage. We talked quite a bit about him yesterday, didn't we? And then... We also mentioned the fact that he has signed for Groupama FDJ next year. He's leaving the team. And and this has also been one of the stories of the DSM season, hasn't it? Um, riders appearing to be unhappy or saying they're unhappy. The latest being Elan van Vilder when he wasn't selected for the, the Vuelta. And Felix Gal, uh, another DSM rider, another highly touted youngster, is going to leave the team as well. He announced that. Um, the other day and yes so it is one of the the themes of their year I spoke this morning to Matt Winston who is one of the coaches at DSM one of the director sportives firstly about Michael Storer yesterday and we also touched on the fact that Storer is leaving at the end of the season well Matt yesterday Michael Storer finally got his Grand Tour stage win saw it the Vuelta last year I remember the state of La Farapone he was close he was close maybe one other time seems like a culmination of a long journey with the team for him yeah for sure I mean he's been on a four year development plan and um, 
we kind of looked at all areas of him as a bike rider. He came into the team in the first year and we, we spent that year learning. And then uh, we worked really closely in the last three years to to really kind of develop everything from descending to how he climbs to his nutrition intake. And it, it, it's been a really nice four-year project with him. And uh, he's making steps. And we saw him in July in Austria and he was making some really good steps there in, uh, in training. His level was really good. Um, and kind of, we, we kind of knew then he was on the cusp of something. I won a stage in Tour de Lan and I kind of spoke to him immediately after. I said, okay, now, now you're really ready. We can, we can for sure win a stage in the Vuelta here. Um, but I think yesterday was, he, he had fantastic team support. Of course, it's, it's really nice for him to go across the line as the winner. And we're really proud of that. But actually, when you look to the stage and how we rode it as a team, we enabled, we gave him the platform to, to go to victory. And um, I think we can't underestimate what the other guys did there behind. And Roman could have gone across in the final, but when he goes across, he takes three or four guys with him. Then it also makes it the odds less for us. And um, yeah, no, it was it was a selfless race by everyone yesterday. And I think kind of, it was nice. Michael took the victory, but we were all really proud. There has been this real turnaround in the last few weeks. And I guess you'll probably say, the message was always to keep doing what we're doing, keep doing what we believe in. But just, for example, even even the likes of us in the media, just mentioning the fact the team has had not had many wins this year. I mean, it, do you have to kind of build a wall to keep that energy away from the riders? Yeah, I mean, we don't go into a season, though, where we say we need this many victories to, uh, to have a successful season. We focus on our process and not going away from that. It's something that we, uh, we, believe, we believe works and kind of... We, we keep working with our experts to keep developing and keep kind of innovating how we are as a team and how we work as a team. And yeah, of course people look and say, oh, you've not scored so many victories, but when you do the process right and you believe in it, then sometimes you'll have a dry patch and then sometimes you'll also have a really nice patch. And uh, I think we, we, we didn't lose the focus of that. You know, we, we did kind of do a lot of still work on, uh, on the, what we needed to do, making sure our basics were all right. And, and yeah, now we see, in the summer we've made that step and uh, now we're turning that process into into victories which is which is always a good reward i guess for the work that we put in we'll, we'll always bring the negativity nonetheless and we'll say that well this is a classic example michael story you've you've invested four years in the guy and finally it comes good and then he's leaving the team and this is a problem that the team has had or is having it seems to be having this year what do you say to that yeah i think kind of though with Michael, we've we've done a really nice four-year project, and he also feels like kind of when you do four years in in a team, it's also nice to, to have that change of scenery sometimes and go somewhere else and keep developing yourself as an athlete and as a rider, and and for sure that's what he's doing. And yeah, he's one of those guys where you always look for and uh, look for his name in the result, and also be happy when you when you see the success that he uh, he can bring. He's a difficult rider to pigeonhole because he just seems to have a massive engine, but you know he's not necessarily an exceptional time trial. He's not an exceptional climber, although he climbs very well. What's he going to become, do you think? Yeah, I think kind of you can look towards those one-week stage races and uh, for for kind of where he will get his best results. Stages like yesterday, where he can kind of really work and uh, and kind of work with his teammates to to bring yeah nice results, I guess. Well, Daniel, you mentioned Dainese is moving in the right direction. He really is incrementally creeping up on a stage win because his last three sprint results in this welter are fourth, then third, then second. So next time, clearly, he's going to win the stage. So, you know, get your money on it with Drummond's The Bookmakers.
Yeah, man, I was, I was over at the Kilometro 3 yesterday, and I was looking, man, all the fish are dying. My name's Isaac Milan, born in Spain, born and raised, moved to Toronto, the six, and uh, yeah, I, 18, I'm an activist. It's horrible, it's horrible, he can vouch for me. You saw it? Bad. Yeah. it? It breaks my heart in pieces, man. Oh, okay. We we come here for the summer, but we come here every summer, and this is one of the worst summers it's been, and it's it's saddening. It's it's horrible. I mean, a few years ago, the Marmenor was full of life, it was, and it was clean and everything, and now it's 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 going downhill. It's it's saddening, man. And yeah, like you said, the the tourism here is going down as well, so. I mean, they gotta wake up, they gotta do something about it, so... My, my name is Maria Dolores. I am 52 years old, and the second picture that my family did for me was here in Mar Menor. So I'm feeling Mar Menor like one person can feel for his, her dog, the fish. All the animals that are living inside, they are going to die. They say the government central and others say no here, but the people from here want something fast because it's going to die. You hope that La Vuelta would be a, an opportunity to get people's attention, get people talking about the problem. Yes, it's a very big opportunity to show to the world the problem that we have in here. It's going to die and we must change the situation. I want to have the Marmenor of all my life again. Well, some voices there um, voicing their concern about what's happening or what appears to be happening uh, on the shores of Marmenor in Spain, where the Vuelta went today. And Daniel, there seemed to be certainly the allegation or the accusation that the Vuelta was was quite deliberately um, turning the other way. Um, you know, it's not uh, these these races are. Are, are great showcases for the country, but um, stories like this kind of rub up against the, uh, you know, the, the 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 point of the Vuelta a España in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when uh, Grand Tour visits a location and the Vuelta does this every year, in particular, it focuses on on tourist resorts. It is with the intention of of bringing business and bringing attention to a place and for the right reasons usually um, today the locals here and the business owners were hoping that the world was going to bring a different kind of attention and awareness about this issue which really uh, has been a theme of their lives and their work over the last few years but seems to be getting worse and worse um, I think the first major incident was in 2016 when I, I think it's it's widely accepted that it was due to well nitrates leaching into the huge saltwater lagoon that I mentioned at the start of the show Mal Menor and causing um, the, the uncontrolled growth of algae in the, a certain type of algae in the lagoon, which then leached oxygen out of the water, um, which caused about 85% of the seagrass in the lagoon to die and the, a huge quantity of fish in turn to die. There was another one of these sort of flare-ups of the algae in 2019 and, and on that occasion three tonnes of dead fish were recovered. And then as recently as last Sunday there were 250 kilos of dead fish 
washed up um, on the shores of Mar Menor. And, you know, it's become a, a political hot potato. There is dispute about what's causing it. Um, the, the local government has at times claimed that it's not the lack of oxygen in the seawater. It's, it's the temperature rising. And in particular this summer, the, the temperature of the water has, has apparently been rising. And, and they say that's to blame. But the, the locals seem pretty helpless and pretty desperate. And there are all sorts of efforts. The, the latest one is the the people of this area sort of taking their lead from something that happened with Lake Erie um, meaning that citizens could file lawsuits on behalf of the lake um, almost making making themselves the, the legal guardians of the the lake Lake Erie in that case and in this case it would be Mar Menor and there is some they've had some encouragement I think they're trying to gather signatures and um, which will enable them to take this sort of motion to parliament um, make them in effect the legal guardians of the lake because they feel or of the lagoon because they don't feel that that the politicians and in some cases even the environmental groups are are really taking this issue seriously but you know as we said La Manga is a big tourist resort it has been a big tourist resort for decades now and you know being here today you can see evidence of of its decay and I can quite understand as well why people aren't coming here in the same numbers as they were before because you know it doesn't smell great the the lagoon even today i think there are there are days when it, it smells a lot worse and as we heard there from isaac the the um well the gentleman from canada who grew up in in spain the the dead fish are, are literally washing up um at people's feet in front of people's eyes and um yeah all pretty troubling yeah um I suppose, you know, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I think, uh, you know, we, we all know that the Grand Tours and cycling in general is uh, has a huge almost propaganda value for, uh, for countries and companies. And, uh, you know, there's absolutely no problem with, with uh, the host nations of the Grand Tours or any race wanting to show off the absolute best that they have to offer. But I think that with that right comes a responsibility not to sort of, you know... Uh, silence or censor people who want to raise um, awareness of a particular issue and it's clear just from hearing your package of of um, a couple of interviews with with local people concerned about the situation um, that they were hoping that the welter coming to town would give them an opportunity to raise awareness uh, of what has happened uh, recently i mean this isn't the first time but i mean it's pretty dramatic isn't it you know 250 kilos of dead fish and um, crustaceans you know washing up on the shore it's 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 desperate really it's a desperate situation um and and we are seeing we are and will see more um evidence of the environmental uh, change the challenge the the climate challenge the ch- climate change will have more of an impact and effect on a sport like professional cycling moving as it does uh, around the world and professional cycling does have a responsibility um, to fairly represent some of these concerns i know in an individual case like this it's very difficult for the welter organizers to kind of go okay guys here's let's make today's story um, a, a negative one um, but I think we have to start looking at the big picture here. The teams and the race organisers are very keen to point out the positive initiatives 
um, in order to kind of you know bank some green capital capital and I'm, I'm not saying that even in a critical way but I think that there's two sides to this equation and and I think that when there are desperate situations on the doorstep of a sport like professional cycling that the sport does have to grow up a bit and um, give a platform to people who want to reasonably uh, shed light on something that's happening to you know to their town their community uh, you know it will be a vital importance to their local economy um, you know that the, the the benefits of a race like the wealth of visiting town you know much much is made of that I think like I say the other side of the coin has to be exposed to the light sometimes as well uh, and just well these races are about also about celebrating beautiful places aren't aren't mm. they so you know it's in, it's in everybody's interest to keep these places beautiful and also the Vuelta I must say should be applauded because it's been quite obvious this year that they have been leading the way on on certain measures to clean up and and reduce the the carbon footprint and general um, environmental footprint of Grand Tours I, I think I've mentioned in the podcast already that the Vuelta is trying to do away with plastic bottles almost do away with plastic bottles this year mm. at starts finishes press rooms and, and so forth so um, I think causes like this one I, th- I think causes like this one would generally will generally hopefully find a sympathetic ear in the Vuelta organisation yeah I mean it would take courageous leadership and it's probably asking a bit much and maybe unrealistic but something like this done in a clever way you know the Vuelta organisers could get themselves on the right side of the issue and say that look this is why we're trying to reduce our impact this is why we're um, getting rid of plastic bottles this is why race organisers want to transition to you know uh, cleaner fuel when it comes to all the vehicles in the convoy etc you know that's what I'm saying that the this issue is two-sided it, there's um you know there's a sort of reluctance to look at the, the 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 ugly side sometimes but perhaps turn the ugly side into part of the story and i don't know you know maybe that will be then the next again, step the then again the these the race organizers have uh, are hugely dependent on relationships with local politicians uh, aren't yeah, they who very true. may well also be in difficult positions chaps uh, another uh, I thought we had another far less important and psych- entirely cycling related scandal on our hands um, just now because an email dropped into my inbox from Antermarche Minali positive after three times top ten thankfully <laughs> that refers only to his state of mind <laughs> uh, but it did it did make my blood run cold uh, anyway um, we should uh, wrap things up for tonight um, we uh, I should say that uh, our sibling podcast El Cycling Podcast Cycling Podcast in Spanish a new episode was released today normally hosted by Lara Messiger and Rob Hatch Rob Hatch unavailable because he's in the UK so Josibo Balocchi uh, stepped wow. in and he has co-hosted El Cycling Podcast with Lara Messiger so they are analysing the first few days of the Vuelta the first week of the Vuelta when is Raimundus Rumzas stepping in for me <laughs> <laughs> Can't come soon enough, Lionel. Uh, Rich, yeah, big stage. Him or, him or, yeah. Big stage tomorrow. Sorry? Tomorrow. Big stage tomorrow, yes. Big stage. What's going to happen, Daniel? Well, summit finish on the Puerto de Velefique. Only hosted one summit finish before. Won by Ryder Heijdal in 2009. 
Uh, a beautiful climb in a very arid, very spectacular region of Spain. We had a day, didn't we, earlier in the Vuelta Ridge near Burgos talking about Western spaghetti westerns and we visited, we made a pilgrimage to Sad Hill Cemetery where the good, the bad and the ugly, the last scene was filmed. A lot of that, a lot of that film was also set in somewhere we're passing very close to tomorrow, the Desierto de Tabernas, which, well, it played host to the filming of well, countless spaghetti westerns and other films, particularly in the 60s and 70s, Lawrence of Arabia, Cleopatra, Conan the Barbarian, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, and there are still numerous studios there with sort of false mock-up saloons and um, dusty wild west style towns um, that, that still are used by a lot of big film studios so we're, we're passing close to there tomorrow i don't know if i'll be able to make a detour and um, stage so i'm going to do slightly better in re- uh, reenacting uh, a classic sergio leone scene than we did rich when we filmed that um, our little vignette last week do you know why spaghetti westerns are called spaghetti westerns I don't actually know. I, I think I, I have because most of them were directed by Italians, ah. such as Sergio Leone. Yeah, very good, very good. There we go. So big stage, um, big mountains day, multiple mountains tomorrow, and it will be, I think, a spectacular one. Well, we will be reconvening tomorrow evening uh, to look back on that stage. Um, in the meantime, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Lionel. Thanks, chaps. Vamos